Someone asked me not long ago, probably just a few weeks ago now, Eric, what would you say in the time that I've been with Apologetics Press, which is right at about 22 years now, what would you say that some of the more frequent and, you know, seemingly kind of effective atheistic attacks have been in recent years? And my response, and I don't know that this is the best response, but my response on that occasion and on this occasion today was and is how they have twisted some of the scriptures to claim that the Bible should actually not make you a Christian, but should allegedly make you an atheist. And these are some of the sayings, some of the videos, some of the, the uh, articles that have been written in recent years uh, by various atheists who I'm, I'm, I'm going to quote and their allegations, um, sadly, have been somewhat effective. I mean, we're, we're going to look next hour in our worship hour at a few statistics to show you uh, where the average, I guess you might say, American is today or what the stats show about unbelief in America. A.A. Milne, a name you may not be familiar with, but he was the author of the Winnie the Pooh series, which uh, can be some great books. However, it's unfortunate that the author, A.A. Milne, once stated the Old Testament is responsible for more atheism, agnosticism, and disbelief, call it what you will, than any book ever written. That the Old Testament, you know, the, the part of the Bible that we call the Old Testament supposedly has made a lot of atheists. Kenneth Leonard in a YouTube video stated, just a few years ago, Bible study, in my experience, is almost a surefire way to make atheists out of Christians. You know, one of the criticisms that a lot of atheists have is that those who claim to be Christians really don't read their Bibles, and if they read their Bibles, they wouldn't be Christians, they would be atheists. I remember a few years ago there was a story on a university campus in Texas. I can't recall which university it was, but there were atheists who were, they were giving out some very inappropriate uh, kind of material to hand out, and I mean like vulgar type material. And then there were Christians who were also, or there were those who identified as some kind of Christian, using that word uh, broadly under the Christendom umbrella, if you will, who uh, they were giving out other kinds of materials. And one, it was reported, one uh, of these Christians came over to the a table of the atheist and was trying to talk to them about the Bible and the atheist just said, well, have you ever read the entire Bible? And the man who was a Christian or who at least claimed to be a Christian said, no, I, I haven't read the entire Bible. And the atheist responded by saying, well, I have and that's why I'm an atheist and not a Christian. Now, I realize, like in Acts chapter 8, we have the Ethiopian eunuch who became a Christian after hearing one lesson, one probably marvelous lesson, beginning with Isaiah 53 on how to become a Christian. He, uh, now, he may have read uh, all of the Old Testament up to that point because he was, I mean, he was studying Isaiah 53 on his way back down to Africa. And uh, however, we understand you don't have to have read the entire Bible to become a Christian. However, I will say that if we are Christians, that one of the you know, best goals you can have as a Christian is to at least have read the entire Bible through at least one time. And a worthy goal might be to read through it every year. However, I will say sometimes that's not always the best goal. Sometimes the, the best way is you know, uh, going through the Bible a little bit more methodically and really understanding the portions of the Scripture that we're reading and not necessarily trying to, if we're, if we're just trying to hurry through the Bible just to say that, well, I've read through the Bible, that's not really doing us a whole lot of good. However, you know, if we're people of the book, let's be people of the book. 
And I will say that there is not one passage, there is not one verse, there is not one uh, rightly divided Bible passage that we have to be afraid of, concerned of, or intimidated by and, you know, ashamed of. Even though people uh, like this next gentleman, Penn Jillette, has, con has contended that, you know, we, we should be ashamed of the Bible. In a YouTube video that this actor, magician, uh, influencer, I suppose you might call him. He said in a video about atheism that's received, oh, I don't know, nearly three million views, I think now. He said, I read the Bible cover to cover, and I think that the average, that anyone who is thinking about maybe being an atheist, if you read the Bible cover to cover, I believe you will emerge from that as an atheist. The Bible itself will turn you an atheist faster than anything, supposedly. And then when asked why reading the Bible would make him an atheist, Penn Jillette said, because what we get told a lot about the Bible is a lot of uh, picking and choosing. And, you know, he might be right there as far as what a lot of people say about the Bible. It's, it's well, we accept, some people accept this and they don't want to talk about this or don't accept that. He then gave his first atheist-making Bible passage saying, When you see Lot's daughter gang-raped and beaten and the Lord being okay with that. So I thought that was interesting and kind of the first passage that we would begin with. And I say interesting that he would begin, you know, when you hear people who are bashing the Bible, contending that the Bible is unworthy of belief or the Bible is full of mistakes, you know, the... the it's, it's always kind of interesting to see, well, what will be the first example that this person will give? You know, sometimes at AP, we will get various ones who contact us, usually by way of email, and sometimes they are, you know, very critical of Christianity and the Bible and our work, and they will tell us how ridiculous we are, how unintelligent we are for believing that there is a God and the Bible is the Word of God, and and then, you know, one of our ways of responding is just, well, can you give an example, you know, one, maybe your best example of what you are referring to. And so I think that it's quite telling that when Penn Jillette is on, you know, a video on, it's uh, published by Big Think, and it's a YouTube video that, again, has received a few million views, he gives his first example. It's, it's from Genesis chapter 19, and what he says is Lot's daughter's being gang raped and the Lord being okay with that. I know this is somewhat, uh, this is a, a sensitive matter, but I don't want to gloss over this and, and like not talk about it just because there are some sensitive things that the Bible discusses. Because what the atheists do is they will go after any and every part of the Bible, especially parts that they think that Christian, Christians ignore for whatever reason. So, what is it that we read in Genesis chapter 19 about? Lot offering his daughters to the wicked men of Sodom. What is it that verse 8 says? You recall the story, hopefully, uh, the, the account of God telling Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, he comes before God and says, what if there are 50 righteous souls or 40, 30, 20, uh, 45, 30, uh, 40, 30, 20, 10, and even if there were 10 righteous souls, God was going to spare this city Obviously, there weren't ten righteous souls. And so, God still mercifully sends two angels to Sodom to the righteous Lot's house, to Lot and his wife and his daughters who were still living at home. And 
he is, they are warning them. Of course, you recall that these angels who were in the form of men, they were seen by Lot in the city and Lot invites them to his house and uh, they are there when this angry mob of men come to Lot's house. And we read in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 8, See now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish. So these are Lot's words. The, the angry men of Sodom had been banging on Lot's door. They have been you know, uh, saying unkind things and they were wanting the men who had come to visit Lot, they were wanting them to come out so that they could do to them as they so desired. And Lot was not going to allow that. Lot should be commended for that part of things, that he was, he was going to protect his guests. But should Lot be commended for what he says in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 8? No, I don't believe so at all. I mean, I'm a, I'm a father of two sons and one daughter. My daughter is 18 years old. Her name is Shelby. She is extremely precious to me. And I am not the bravest man in the world, okay? I wish I could say that I was, that I was the strongest and the bravest and the, you know, the best dad and all this stuff. But I'm, I'm not. However... I can, I can guarantee you that these words would never come out of my mouth. Here, take my daughter or daughters in this case and do to them as you wish. I, I really, I, again, I, I'm, I've probably been cowardly in my life more times than I would like to admit. I'm just saying, I cannot imagine for the life of me these words ever coming out of my mouth. And you know what the Bible never says? The Bible never says that God was okay with this. The Bible never says that God condones this. From everything I can tell, even though it is the case that in, in uh, ancient times that how you treated visitors, that hospitality was taken to a, a, another level. You know, I, I, my wife and I have been treated by Christians and churches in different places around the world, I mean, so kindly, and we have just been treated much better than we have ever deserved. However, even as well as we've been treated, it, it seems as though the ancients, they, they ratcheted up hospitality to a level that we might not even recognize. So much so that, as I understand it, they, they protected their visitors, those who were under their care, those that they were caring for. They protected them kind of like with their, with their lives. Except in this case, Lot's willing to give his daughters rather than himself. Of course, apparently, these angry men, they didn't want Lot and they didn't want his daughters, which is another interesting thing. You remember what the criticism was? That Lot's daughters were, you know, that there was something that actually happened to them here and that God was okay with that. You know what happens so often with people who make criticisms of the Bible? I mean, I have seen this time and time again. What happens so often, I'm not going to say all the time, but much of the time is that those who are making the criticisms, they're misrepresenting almost always what the Bible actually says. And they are saying things that the Bible does not actually say. And so the Bible never says that God was okay with these 
things that went on here or what Lot said and that what Penjolet accused God of or the Bible writers of is not what the Bible writers said and is not what God did. Now, is it, uh, should it be surprising to us that Lot... Uh, said some things here that are not right? No, it shouldn't be surprising to us. Even though we can read in our New Testaments that Lot was a righteous man. And of course, even the inhabitants of Sodom believe that, righteous, that uh, Lot was a righteous man. Just a few verses later in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 9, we read where uh, they, said, stand, uh, they said to Lot, this one came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a, a judge. You know, Lot had said, please men, do not do so wickedly, Genesis 19, verse 7. And they say, you know what, you've been acting like a judge for a long time. You know, you know what happens to a lot of people even in our day and time? When you point out what sin is and the sins, maybe uh, various ones in our country. Um, of course, we want to do it in a kind way, but also in a courageous manner understanding that our God is a holy God who cannot fellowship sin. He's not going to bless nations that are full of sin. And God wants His people to be sincere saints and not, not uh, you know, hypocritical individuals or churches. Well, God's not going to bless the unrighteous. They understood that Lot was a righteous individual. However, on this occasion... As well as on other occasions, you know, just the fact that he chose years earlier to pitch his tent toward Sodom. To, to you know, he he decided to take that good. Ground. You remember when he and Abraham split, and he chose first, and he chose to go toward the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then eventually, apparently, he went to move into the city of Sodom. He made some unwise choices. He said something that seems to be extremely despicable, especially as we read it today, maybe not knowing everything that was going on there. And yet, he was a righteous man. Are there times, you know, think about your own life. You know, if you are a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, can you say that you are a righteous person by the grace of God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the work that God has done uh, for us on our behalf? and our, Can we be committed Christians and be righteous? Absolutely. Can we look back on our lives, even our Christian lives, and say, man, I wish I hadn't thought that. I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that. Are there times in our Christian lives that we are ashamed of what we said or how we acted or what we didn't say when we should have or what we should have done when we didn't? Probably so. If, if, if there's not one moment in your Christian life that you can look back on and say, you know, I, I wish I hadn't done, well, you're a much better person than I am. Lot was a righteous man, but he made a very poor decision here and should have said and done some other things. However, God was never okay with this. You recall that, that God's, God eventually destroyed Sodom, right? So he was repulsed by the wickedness that was going on. On there, and what is alleged that was going on in this chapter by this one fairly renowned atheist simply is not the case. Well, let's go over a second, very frequent, extremely frequent criticism of the God of the Bible. Looking at just something that's found a couple of pages over in my Bible, a couple of chapters over, Genesis chapter 22. And verse 2, supposedly because God told Abraham to kill his son that 
our God is a terrible person. In fact, this is the very next thing that Penn Jillette stated in this video, that Abraham being willing to kill his son is supposedly a reason for us uh, needing to reject the Bible and the God of the Bible. The London's Telegraph listed this as number eight in its list of top ten worst Bible passages. Abraham being told to kill his son. Dan Barker said in his debate with my colleague Kyle Budd a few years ago at the University of South Carolina, he said, remember the thing about when Abraham, he, God, asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? By the way, Abraham should have said, no way, I'm better than you. I'm not going to kill my son. And that wasn't even the most sacrilegious thing that Dan Barker said in that debate. But these are some of the comments that atheists make and, and have made. That Genesis 22 is a reason to reject the God of the Bible. What is it that we read in Genesis 22? Well, we read... God telling Abraham to take now your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering as one of, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Uh, Drew mentioned a while ago uh, in the book, The Anvil's Three Answers to Alleged Bible Discrepancies. I mentioned that book. I believe that what we're looking at here in the Bible class period is from chapter 3 of that book. Seven, th that particular chapter I believe is called Seven atheist-making, quote-unquote, atheist-making, supposedly should make you an atheist, Bible verses. And so if you want to see any written material on this, you can see that in print, or you can just go to our website and in the search engine type some of these keywords or key verses. And so supposedly right here, God telling Abraham to go and kill your son, this is a reason to reject the God of the Bible. And let me say right at the beginning of this discussion of this passage is that this is indeed... Uh, I understand. It's a difficult passage. You know, as you read through Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, you read the first 21 chapters of Genesis, and then you get to chapter 22, and you see, I mean, if you've never read this before, and you see that God tells Abraham to go kill his son, you've got to be thinking, hmm, what, what is going on here? I mean, that, that's a, that would be a logical question to ask. Why is God telling Abraham? Abraham, the one to whom he said, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The one who received at, at the age of 75 received this promise and 25 years later the son of promise is born and then he is told to go kill this son. And so the enemy of Christianity, I'm not saying that that enemy or the enemy of the Bible and the God of the Bible, I'm not saying that enemy could not change and I mean, did the Apostle Paul not change? Was he not a persecutor of the church and then do a 180 degree turnaround and become a Christian? Do we want these atheists to become Christians? Absolutely. And if so, do you know what we might have to do in this day and time? We might have to deal with some of these kinds of verses to help them through their unbelief to coming to believe in uh, the, a rational belief in the God of the Bible. So what do we say about this? Well, I would contend, first of all, that we recognize that this was a test. You know, we, we need to be careful just reading one verse and not consider the verses that are around it. Well, when you read the preceding verse, I mean the phrase, the sentence before Genesis 22 and verse 2, you read in verse 1, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. So what is going on in Genesis 22? It is a test. 
We need to remember that though Abraham did not know what was going on behind the scenes in verse 1 or what was going to happen later on in the chapter when God says, Abraham, don't kill your son, he did not know what we know today. He did not understand everything that was going on. But this was a test. And the fact is, God tests His people. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Was, was Job tested? Absolutely. Let me just give you an example of a test. When Jesus came to earth, this is not one that we, we maybe quote a lot, but you can recall in John chapter 6 where there are thousands of individuals who are around Jesus and uh, they are hungry. And Jesus says to one of His apostles in John chapter 6 and verse 5, Jesus lifted up His eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward Him, He said to Philip, this is what He said to one of His disciples here, to Philip. He says, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? There's thousands of people around Jesus. And he says, hmm, you know, is there a Dollar General around here anywhere that we can? I mean, it's going to be close by if there is a Dollar General, right? We, we know that. I mean, listen, I live in Wetumpka, Alabama. Honey, we counted in Wetumpka how many Dollar Generals there are? How many? Three. Three Dollar Generals in Wetumpka. Can you imagine how many there must be in Montgomery? I mean, I, I don't know, but... I mean, okay, maybe if it's not Dollar General, it's Winn-Dixie, it's Foodland, it's Walmart. Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Uh, I don't think that Sam Walton was around, okay, 2,000 years ago. But so here's the question, though. Why, why did Jesus say this? Well, you don't have to wonder. You don't have to wonder because the very next verse tells us. But this he said to him, this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So was Jesus being dishonest here? No, not at all. Was Jesus testing this disciple? In what way? Why? You know, I can't say I know for, for sure, but here, here the thing is, John had already recorded uh, a couple of, if not more, uh, of the miracles that wonders that Jesus had worked. He had, he had already been in a wedding feast where he changed uh, some 120 gallons of water into a, an extremely tasty beverage. 120 gallons just by willing it to happen. You think if someone could do that? I mean, how, how, much, how many people... Could you serve and, and, and you know, serve and, and, and give plenty of refreshments to... If you Listen, when we have a, a get-together at our house for a care group or a, some of the church comes over, you know, we might have, what, six or seven two-liters or something, seven or eight two-liters. We're talking about 120 gallons. And Jesus could do that at the snap of the fingers simply by willing it to happen. Maybe He just wanted His apostles, His disciples to understand that that it's not a problem for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, for the Messiah, for the Mashiach, for the Christos, the Christ, to do what the Old Testament prophet said that he would do, work all sorts of wonders so that people might come to believe in him. The fact is God tests his people. 
was God doing there to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22? Whether we like it or not, whether we totally understand everything about it or not, God was testing Abraham. I would also just remind us that again, God knew that um, God knew what he would do later in sparing Isaac. If Abraham had actually killed Isaac, he would have been disobeying God. Well, Eric, I thought we just read in Genesis 22 and verse 2 where God says to go kill Isaac. Well, he did, but you recall that later we read as Abraham was about to follow through with that command, the angel of the Lord called uh, to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. So question, at this point where Abraham actually thought he was going to go through with this and God said, stop, does God have a right as the sovereign creator and ruler and all-powerful ruler of the universe, does he have a right to tell us to do something at one point and to not do something at another point? Well, sure. I mean, as a parent of, of children, does a parent have a right to say at one moment for one righteous reason, yes, and at another moment for another righteous reason to say no? I don't know why, Drew and Julie, but Jackson's like looking over here at you guys. I, don't, I mean, that was so funny. As, as I started saying that, it's like he was looking at his parents. Jackson, you have to tell us later exactly why you were looking at your parents there. Why? I mean, it's like when I said at one moment, yes, and another moment, no, Jackson's like, hmm, I don't know about that. Uh, but, you know, Young people, as you get older and, and, and you are blessed to, if you choose to marry and, and God blesses you with children, uh, there are going to be times where you might say yes at one moment, no to at another. You might say yes to one child and, and no to another for it may be very good reasons, righteous reasons. Well, God says to go kill your son. God says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. Why? Well, it was, think about this. God, does God know the past perfectly? Absolutely. Does God know the future perfectly? If He so chooses to know it, yes, He, he certainly does. Did God know in Genesis 22 that Abraham was not going to kill Isaac? Yes. Why did all this happen? I can't tell you why all the reasons, but I do know that this was a test. And it was a test that Abraham passed with flying colors. Is it not amazing? Uh, just you think about what kind of people should Christians be? We should be people of faith. We should be people who believe. But it's not just a, a mere mental assent to who God is. Oh yeah, I believe that there is a creator. And then go on and live your life however you want to live. It's not just, well, I'm a Christian. I believe that Jesus Christ, I quote unquote believe that Jesus Christ is uh, the Son of God. Do you really believe or are you like some of those um, high and mighty uh, Pharisees or some of the, the uh, Jews who contended that behind the scenes, you remember John chapter 12, that you know, they were willing to confess Jesus, but in public they weren't willing to confess Jesus. Did they really believe in Jesus? I mean, we talk about the kind of saving faith that is a confessional faith. It is a confessing faith. It is in private and public, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and I'm going to follow Him and do whatever He says kind of belief. That's the kind of saving faith that God has always wanted His people to have. Now, is it a faith that increases in time, young people? Yes. You know, the faith that you have today, is, is it the same exact uh, uh, depth of faith that you plan to have and want to have when you're 30, when you're 40, when you're 50? 
Now you know that, that Christianity is a grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. Christianity is about growing. And so we start with some, you know, as we, as we become Christians, we have faith and we have a faith. And we are a part of the faithful and yet our faith increases. And you know, Abraham's faith had been increasing and it increased here so much so that he was willing to give his promised precious son. I mean, you think about if you are parents, your precious children, being able to do what Abraham did. But here is the thing. What's so awesome about Abraham's faith, and I'm so thankful, as unusual as this chapter is, I'm so thankful that this is in our Bibles. Because this is faith building. This is challenging. This is, Eric, you want to be this kind of faithful servant of the Lord. What do you mean that kind? I mean that for years God had been telling Abraham, you're going to have a son and through him, and he names him Isaac. I mean, and he, you know, God specifies Isaac, Genesis chapter 21 and verse 12 at the end of that verse. In Isaac your seed shall be called. In Isaac, all nations are going to be blessed. I want you to go out and kill Isaac. You know what Abraham concluded? You know what Abraham concluded. Hebrews chapter 11, you have to just love how the, Hebrew writers, how the Hebrews writer referred back to this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, there's that word again, offered up Isaac. Did he literally offer him, like go through with it? No, but it was as if he did in that he was prepared to. And he who had received the promises, Abraham, offered up his only begotten son, his monogenes, his unique son, of whom it was called, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. How about that? That's the kind of faith that Abraham had, had. That's the kind of faith that we want to have. I'm also thankful that this is in there because it certainly seems to be a picture of the coming of the ultimate monogenes. John chapter 3 verse 16. Only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him. What kind of belief? Just a mere mental acknowledgement to a little wave of the hand and move on about your business and life? Absolutely not. It is a belief that follows. It is a belief that sacrifices. It is a belief like the kind of belief that Abraham had. Number three, here is another verse that uh, atheists say should make you an atheist. From Psalm 130. Seven. It's not a psalm that we read a lot and atheists would contend, well, you know, Christians, you just don't want to read this in your assemblies because you are ashamed of it. Psalm 137 verses 8 and 9 says, O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us, happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. So you, you, you see this and the atheist says, hey, God wants you to go kill babies. Is that, is that, are you serious? I mean, Dan Barker says in his list... The 10 worst Old Testament verses by Dan Barker. That's a very interesting title, Drew. You know, I don't, I don't make, you know, I don't write articles and title them, you know, For God So Loved the World by Eric Lyons. That's not the title of my articles. But anyway, here, here it is by Dan Barker. And he says, this is number one. I have always thought this 
was the worst verse in the Bible, in my opinion, remains unchanged. Why? Because allegedly God is telling His people to go and dash babies against the rocks. The Telegraph of London lists this passage and says that this passage is often omitted from readings in, in church, apparently because it's just so bad we're too embarrassed to read it. But let me just pause here for a moment. And, and, and before we respond to and explain that passage, which does not mean anything like the atheist contends it means, we need to ask ourselves, on, on what basis can an atheist say that killing a child is wrong or evil? I realize that, that most atheists probably would, that that's wrong or, or evil. They, they might say that. But the question is, why would they say How could they say that? I mean, reasonably speaking, as far as giving a, a logical reason, why could you say that, that it would always be wrong to dash little babies against the rocks? Atheism logically implies, I'm talking about the philosophy of atheism, logically implies what Jean-Paul Jean Sartre said it implies years ago when he said everything is permitted. He was an atheist, by the way. If there is no God, everything is permitted and everything would include murder. You see, if, if you and I are evolved animals, if, if, if ultimately we came from nothing, which somehow gave way to something, I mean, you know that the leading atheists in the world have been saying for a few decades now that the entire universe came from nothing? I mean, I've, I've, I've read their articles, I've seen it in some of their debates where they have just said, are you telling me that the entire universe came from nothing? It came from a big bang, which came from what? Stephen Hawking said on national television a few years ago that nothing caused the Big Bang. That's what he said. Richard Dawkins was responding to this in Australia a few years ago, and he was like, well, yeah, I mean, we all came from nothing. Now, explain to us you know, how everything could come from nothing. He went on to say, well, I know it defies common sense, but well, that's exactly right. It does defy common sense. Common sense doesn't allow you to get something from nothing, but let me just show you that one of the leading atheists a few years ago by the name of P Peter Singer, he is actually on record as saying killing a, for example, a disabled infant is not morally equivalent to killing a person. Very often it is not wrong at all. And, and my, I, I submit to you that Peter Singer has been, he was just taking the philosophy of atheism to its logical conclusion. That if, listen, if you came from roaches and orangutans over hundreds of millions of years, I mean, do you kill roaches? I tell you, get a roach in my house, yeah, I mean, it's going down. Let me tell you something. I, I, grew up in, I grew up in Oklahoma. We had like little roaches in Oklahoma. When I moved to Alabama, I'm like, what, what kind of roaches? Where am I? Am I on a different planet? I mean, there's some, I moved down here about 22 years ago, and I'm thinking, I've never seen some of the roaches the size. And I, th I don't think it's just my yard and my house, okay? We try to, you know, get them out of the house. But I'm just saying, my conscience is not bothered whatsoever by killing a roach. And you know what? I eat chicken. You know what you have to do to a chicken in order to eat it? Well, I hope you kill it first. Or it has been killed and hopefully fried. That's the best kind. You know, last night we had some pig and turkey, all right? Do, do, do I have a, a conscience issue with that? I know some people do, but I'm saying human beings are, are different. 
well, why are you different? Because we were created in the image of God. And that's why murder and all sorts of other things are wrong. You know, it, it, can a pig or a dog, you know, lie? And, and you know, do you, do you discipline your dog for lying or for committing fornication or adultery? Or No. Human beings, though, can, can and sadly do commit murder. And that's something that we can say is wrong. But, you know, whether it's abortion or whether it's something else that atheists and their, their philosophy of atheism would condone, I want you to see what two secular bioethicists said a few years ago in the Journal of Medical Ethics. Um, Alberto Jubilini and Francisca Minerva argued that what we call afterbirth abortion, killing a newborn, should be permissible in all the cases where abortion is, including cases where the newborn is not disabled. Disabled or not, I mean, just think about what is being said here. I have this article back in my office at AP, and I'm telling you, it is, it is probably the most gut-wrenching, infuriating article, one of the worst I have ever read. I only came across it a few months ago, even though it has a publication date of 2013. They went on in this article to say, even if someone would like to and wanted to adopt your children and it would be easier for you mentally and emotionally to, it would be harder for you to give your child up for adoption than they were arguing in this article that you could kill your children rather than, than give them up because some loving uh, husband and wife, mother and father would want to adopt your children if it's harder on you to give them up for adoption they argued that it would be okay. My, my point is atheism, the philosophy of atheism is repulsive when you take it to its logical conclusion. Well Eric does Psalm 137 not say what it says? Does it not say happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock? We only have three or four minutes here maybe two or three minutes left so let me get, go to Psalm 137 and tell you what, what's going on here. Again, let's not just read two verses. Let's read all nine verses. And what you're going to see is the psalmist is talking about an individual from Jerusalem, from Judea, who was taken into Babylonian captivity. And that person is being asked to entertain the Babylonians. Let me ask you something. Someone takes you from your homeland. Someone comes and captures you in Leeds, Alabama and makes you a slave. And they say, say after a few days, weeks or months, hey, why don't you entertain us? You know, Drew, is, you know, he was like famous at Freed Hardeman for being a guitar player and a singer and all that. I'm sure his kids know all about that. And, and if they said, Drew, we want you to entertain us, man, with those groovy songs you used to sing back in the... I didn't really grow up in the 60s or 70s, okay? But, I, but you know, it was a long time ago for some of our young people. And uh, I'm not sure that Drew would want to do that if he has been taken away from his family, from his home and homeland. What's going on here in Psalm 137? By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, verse 1. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps. Uh, upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive asked for us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth or amusement, you know, laughter, entertainment, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. To which 
the writer is saying, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill of playing you know, this instrument. Let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. He is, so he's in Babylon and he is, you know, if you will, mourning. At the same time, he's being asked to amuse and entertain the Babylonians. And then he, he prophesies about what's going to happen in the future. You see, the Medes and the Persians are going to destroy Babylon. And when they do, he's saying, O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed. Not by, not by the Jews, by the Medes and the Persians. And you know the Medes and the Persians, this is descriptive. This is not prescriptive, this is descriptive language describing what's going to happen. Happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one, and it's sad to think about, happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rocks. There are a lot of other so-called atheist-making Bible verses that didn't have time to cover this morning. Uh, if you want to read more, learn more about those things, you can, again, go to apologeticspress.org if you would like, and you can learn a lot more about that. Thank you very much for the time we've had in our Bible study period this morning.